Hey guys, today we have an incredible continuation to our summer break message series. And here's been our basic idea. How do we take this change in schedule that happens around the summer for many of us? How do we take that change in schedule and then leverage it to do something more than just hang out? How do we leverage it to make a difference in God's world? specifically in our lives, but also the lives of those around us. And that's why one of the reasons we're taking a, uh, a missions trip this summer to help people leverage some of the extra time or the time that they've created in order to make a difference. And so today's topic is right in line with that. I want to talk with you about a concept, an idea that if you've been around church for a while, you've heard this idea before. In fact, the yawn factor may kick in. You know what the yawn factor is, don't you? It's the idea that you've heard it before. You've been there. You've seen it. And yet, if this very clear, simple priority in the scripture isn't maintained among people who call themselves followers of Jesus, some significant problems kick in, significant difficulties. And on the other hand, if this very simple and clear priority from the Bible is upheld as a priority among people who call themselves followers of Jesus, there's an incredible life-giving force that enthuses that group. It energizes and real life change happens. The concept we're going to be talking today about is evangelism. Now, that's a word that has a long history. And for some folks, depending on your background, it brings up a certain emotion, potentially. Some of you who've been around church, you've heard this word a lot. Evangelism might kick in the yawn factor. It might kick in an, oh no, here goes the guilt thing. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, just the opposite. When the early church, those first few gatherers who followed Jesus, got together. They talked about, well, in the Greek, it's, it's euangelion, euangelion. It's the idea that there's this good news that we want to share. We want to share the good news of Jesus that's happened in our lives, the good news of Jesus and the work of God recorded in the scripture, and the work of God we see going on around us as people begin to step into the life he has for them. We want to share that with people. And so from time to time, churches over the centuries have given priority of time, priority of placement, priority of money to this concept because the good news, here's the purpose, the good news is being shared so that people can experience what God has for them. So before I jump into the bulk of my message, the other day I was driving my car and something caught my attention. I... I I'm a fairly normal guy, but I have a few quirks that make me a little odd. I'll share one of those with you right now. Uh, I like to watch kids get in trouble. <laughs> it's hilarious to me. Now, I don't like kids getting in trouble. I like to watch kids getting in trouble. That unique dynamic that happens between parents and kids is parents try their best to mold and shape, often change, the immediate and long-term behavior of their kids. I think that's one of the funniest things in the world. Jill and I have four kids. You, you know what that's like, don't you? Uh, here's what it's like. It's like you take three kids, you have three kids, and you go to the ocean and you're swimming and you're drowning, and then somebody says, here, here's another one. That's what four kids is like. We have four kids, and I know myself the dynamic of trying to wrangle kids along. The other day, I was driving my car, and my window was down. It was a really nice day, and I have a sunroom, so I, you know, and I have the whole thing going, and this car pulls up beside of me, and it's a mom with a few kids. Their windows are down, and I don't know the background, 
But I hear this mom giving this seven, eight-year-old kid sitting in the back seat down the road. She's like, if, I actually heard her say, if you don't stop this, by the time you become an adult, nobody's going to be able to live with you. I don't know what they were discussing, but I really wanted to know. The light turned green. She wasn't paying attention, so she didn't go immediately. And there was no way I was going to leave until I... She finally pulled away, and, and I got my... Well, the reason I brought that up is there is a place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul, who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about two-thirds of the New Testament. And there's a place in the Bible where he takes on the role of a parent... He was the guy that traveled around the known world, starting churches, gathering groups of people, sharing the evangelion, the good news, doing evangelism. People would commit their lives to Jesus. Their lives would begin to change. They would band together and they would say, what if we pooled our resources? What if we gave concerted effort? What if we gave focused time towards sharing the message of Jesus. They would do that, and churches were springing up. It's exactly what happens here. Busy people who have plenty of things to do on their plate get together, share focused time, energy, money, out of the goodness of their heart in response of gratitude to a God who's blessed them, who saved them, who changed them, and they share that good news. Oh, it isn't, listen, I don't know what you think happens around here. It's not that a group of people have nothing to do. No, that's not the case at all. The people around here who make this church happen, they're often the busiest, most consumed. They got families and jobs and schooling to do. They got relationships to manage. They're tired. And yet they pull together out of the overflow of their heart and say, we've got to share the good news of Jesus who helps make sense of this entire life. We have to share that with a group of people. Well, the Apostle Paul was on the forefront of that movement back when the church began. And he took on often the role of a father. Not not literally, but that caring, concerned attitude of the person who has wisdom and wants to speak into people who haven't lived as long, don't have the wisdom, whose journey isn't as protracted as his was. And so out of the call in his life to be a leader, he would speak. And I want to take you to that place right now that just, it's kind of like me watching somebody get a spanking. It's you don't like it, but you can't turn away, all right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. It begins powerfully. By the way, this is some of your story. This first sentence right here, this is your story. Here's, here's what it says. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The old is gone, the new is here. We're going to pause right here in this passage and come back to it in just a second. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians. There were two letters. We're in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians right now. The first letter he wrote to that group that he started, traveled away and wrote them a letter like a parent. And let's kind of get the background story before we see what he does with this passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the first letter. It happens before the second letter. Makes sense? And he's trying to pump them up to help them receive the full message of the good news. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. Now the background is, many of these people have experienced new life in Jesus already. Their old life is gone. They're on a new way. And yet they're not perfect. So here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, brothers and sisters. That's kind of like my dad calling a family meeting and saying, hey kid, come on. 
We, we, we need to talk. Now, when my dad, when my dad wants to talk, that's not a good thing. When my dad wants to chat, that's not so bad. But when he says, let's talk, well, he's about to dole it out. So here's what Paul said. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. So here's the idea. You accept Jesus into your life. You begin to walk by God. You commit your life to him. You receive his grace that is dispensed because of his death and resurrection. New life has come. You're then engaging the spiritual life with active, proactive responsibility and engagement. The other side of that story is the idea of worldly, that you're rather out of tune with the spiritual stuff. Paul says, my brothers and sisters, I'd like to address you on the spiritual angle, but I can't because you're still worldly. So it's about to come down. Here's, here's what he says. Merely infants in Christ. Uh-oh. So here's the father saying, you guys are going to have to grow up. Now, the good news is he's not talking to us. <laughs> he's talking to them. So we can watch this with a certain amount of detachment. All right? So don't get your feelings hurt. He's not talking to you yet. All right. So mere infants in Christ. Here's what he said. I gave you milk, keeping with the infant theme, not solid food. You were not yet ready for it. I wanted to give you more. You just couldn't handle it. Then he says, indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. The, the spiritual thing hasn't gripped you yet. It's not moving up on the priorities list. The things of God get your leftover attention. I would like to switch that around. That's where Paul's going, but we can't yet because you're still over here in this column. Oh yeah, you're glad you're going to heaven. You're glad you have the new life. It just seems to get crowded out by everything else. So he says, you're still not ready. Verse three, you're still worldly. And then here's how it worked out in their congregation. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? They're jealous of each other. They're fighting. Every little thing gets exploded. Drama's happening all over the place. They're lighting up Facebook. They obviously didn't have Facebook. If they did, they would have been lighting up Facebook. You, you know what happens. People like, uh, among Christians, you see this. Somebody will post, and you can, like, you're not there when they type, but you can imagine what it looks like. And so they, they, they hear something, they see something, some church does something they, didn't like, they don't like, and, and they take on the role of the righteous crusader. Have you seen this? And so they put on their little helmet, they grab their little sword, and they go sit at their computer. And when they type, it's almost like their fingers are about to fall off from the pressure. Yeah, you don't see it, but you can kind of imagine. And then this moment comes after they've typed the thing in correction of everybody else because they're certain they're right. And you can just imagine that they take their finger and they read it over, make sure there's no typos. The intelligent ones do, the, the dumb ones don't. They, they make sure there's no typos. And then you can almost see them take their finger and hit send. And I can imagine many folks who do that, and maybe folks in Paul's world, if they were fighting, they took on that feeling of, ooh, I just showed them. That kind of stuff among Christians has been happening since the beginning of the church. And it doesn't fall in the category of, spiritual it falls in the category of worldly to engage in infantile discussion in environments that don't create a healthy dialogue listen you can almost talk about anything as a follower of jesus as long as you talk about it in healthy ways the bible talks about that but when you engage in infantile jealousies and finger pointing and quarreling 
it shows where we really are. Paul says, I'd like to give you better stuff, but you're too focused on this. So he says, you're still worldly, fighting, jealous, and quarreling among you. And then he says, are you not acting like simply human beings? Now, this is not like an acknowledgement that we're all human. That's the positive spin. This is the negative spin, like you're human, but you've been redeemed. You've been called to something more. You're supposed to give in to something more than just your base instincts. This is not about proving that you're right and they're wrong. This is about a bigger movement. In the movement, we can have discussion and genuine debate. And when we do it, there's honor and integrity and people own their statements. You look people in the eye and you have conversation. And when you want to talk about difficult subjects, you go with a certain amount of humility, even as you're armed with truth. Oh, that, that's acceptable. That's, that's the solid spiritual engagement. But the soft soap, milk, toast, infantile discussions that were happening in 1 Corinthians weren't promoting at all the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul takes on the role of a father and he says, I got to tell you that this quarreling and fighting and jealousy and ranking and who's right and who's wrong and the way you're doing it, it's unacceptable. You're not acting... You're acting like mere humans, verse 4. For when one says, and here's how it worked out, hey, I follow Paul, this is my brand. And another one says, I follow Apollos, that's my brand. Are you just acting like base human beings? No, here's where it gets interesting for us, verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Paul's writing, talking about himself. Evidently, there's some people saying, I like Paul's brand. Well, I like Apollos' brand. Well, if you like Apollos' brand, you're an idiot. You're dumb. You're probably not even saved. I mean, two-thirds of all Christians aren't going to go to heaven. I actually saw that comment recently. Two-thirds of all Christians aren't going to go to heaven. Now, you understand, friends, the very definition of Christian means one who put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They accept his death and resurrection as connecting human beings to God restoring a relationship that was broken by sin, covering sin by grace. Friends, if two-thirds of people who've done that haven't gone to heaven, I don't, aren't going to go to heaven, I don't have a prayer. That's the kind of silliness that Christians get into. What all, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Here's, here's, where, here's where for four corners it matters. They're only servants. A servant serves. A servant is not the rule maker. A servant doesn't set the agenda. They serve the agenda. They serve the rule maker. Paul and Apollos are simply servants through whom you came to believe. Paul and Apollos, both serve in the Corinthian church, both had different takes on certain issues within the broader spectrum of Christianity, but they were just servants to the ultimate goal. They're servants as the Lord assigned to each a task. I like this. I planted a seed, Paul says. Apollos watered the seed. But what's really going on is servants serve. God makes it grow. Now, now we're back to bedrock. Now we're back to the solid meat of Scripture and to the solid agenda of the church. God's work among his people. God's work. So that when people argue and debate and discuss, God's work has to take priority over our opinions. And it's up to the debaters to make sure that their opinions don't supplant God's agenda. There's a way to argue for truth that doesn't promote truth. It undercuts. It undermines. You've probably been in a dynamic like that, where you were having an argument with a close friend, and it was going well for the first three or four sentences. 
The first three or four sentences were going fairly well. And then one of them said something like, well, that's just stupid. Have you ever been in a dynamic like that? Or somebody makes a comment where it's obvious that they're not even listening to you? And so here we started out with a decent amount of discussion about something that may or may not matter too much, but the discussion's going well, people are being honored, they're sharing their opinions in helpful ways, and then somebody undercuts. Well, at that point, it begins to break down. And God's agenda in that relationship, the healthy thing in that dynamic and discussion doesn't get elevated. Now we're in the level of trying to determine who's being honored and not being honored, and why don't I have your attention, and you never listen to me, and I hate the way you make me feel, and all those dynamics that happen among people happen in churches and they distract from the common mission, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So God makes it grow. Verse 7. So here's, this is beautiful. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. In God's agenda, in the gospel, in the evangelion, in the good news, the proclaimers of the good news, the holders of truth are not the point. Let me make it clear for us. We're not the point. Now, I'm glad you come and listen to me open God's word. I take that very seriously. I pray. I see God. I talk to counselors. I, I engage theologians. I engage church history over the last couple thousand years. I reach back into the Old Testament. I take it very seriously. But when I'm on, when I do well, the thing motivating me is not in an attempt to get you to try to be impressed with me or my knowledge. It's to elevate Jesus, to elevate God's work, and let that set the tone. Let that set the momentum. Let that set the pace. Let that determine the way I engage, not only what I engage. It, in, it describes how I communicate, not simply what I communicate. And forgetting that principle was splintering the first Corinthian church. That's an ugly dynamic. You would like to think that because God left it here in black and white for everybody to see at the beginning of the movement of the church, that churches from this point forward have never really gotten that wrong again. I mean, the lesson is explicit for us here. And yet, that's not the case at all. If you look at Christianity at large, we're splintered around some pretty important things on occasion, but we're splintered around a whole lot of silly things too. And what is at stake when that happens? God's agenda doesn't get advanced. People promote their own sense of rightness and wrongness as opposed to encouraging people towards God. So, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose— and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Now, I like this. For we are co-workers in God's service. We're co-workers. We're co-workers in God's service. We're partners in God's service. You're God's field. God's service, God's field. You are God's field and God's building. The image that Paul is trying to get the First Corinthian church to rally around so that they quit getting splintered and caught up into all other kinds of things and drawing lines and factions around sometimes important things, but even in the important things, the way they do it undermines. He's trying to get them to see something different. You're God's service. You're God's field. 
The idea is the, 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 the field of grain, you know, the amber waves of grain, miles and miles. You're the field, and something's growing, something precious is important. You're God's building. God's building a building. You're his, the other New Testament word for this is you're his church. You're his church, and he's building this thing, and you can get distracted pretty easily. I, I love the image of the field, of the building. Maybe it's because we're building a church building right now. And if there was ever a time the churches get distracted, I don't think we are. But if there ever was, it's, it's times of change. I'm going to write these words down because they're going to matter to us. It's at times of change. Transition. or stress. All three of these, all three of those dynamics in a person's life opens them up, makes them susceptible to the goofiness that Paul is trying to describe. And yet change, transition, and stress are a normal part of life. And when churches build buildings, when people go on missions trips and trying to arrange their schedules around it to make it a priority, when people Last week when men stood up, some 40, 50 of us, and said, we want God to be a part of our lives and we want him to be a priority. When you make a change like that, it opens you up and makes you susceptible to goofy dynamics. Weird things happen. You know, make a commitment to step up with God and see how much gets dumped on your plate at work on Monday. It, it, it almost seems like that kind of stuff happened. Make a decision to follow Jesus and see the opportunities to engage anything other than the work of Jesus that tends to make a financial commitment and watch the other things begin to crumble around you. It's like, it's like there's this spiritual thing that happens. And yet all along, God is growing his field, building his church. We're in his service together. We're co-laborers. And this whole thing of God at work in the world is bigger than any one person. And can I make this perfectly applicable to, be, to you? The whole thing of what God is doing in your life, listen, for just a moment, forget what God's doing in the world. What he's doing in your life, it's bigger than you. From the outset, you are never going to be able to walk the God life on your own. It's impossible. You'll never experience all that God has for you. The life here and the life to come by yourself. There are no alone Christians. There are Christians who act alone, and in so doing, they rob themselves of the power and the dynamic of coming together as co-laborers, not cohabitants. <laughs> we're not just doing life together. We're working together. And when that's elevated, the work of God, it gets rid of a lot of the goofy silliness that happens among Christians. Ah. I can take you and show you over the years of my ministry the folks who have been the troublemakers in God's work, the destroyers of relationships, the line drawers. Those folks have too much time on their hands. They're not busy about the Lord's work. That's why God calls us co-laborers. He knows that if we stay focused on the agenda, the field grows, the building gets built, the church is established, the people who are a part of it they grow away from milk to meat. And so what is the work God wants to have happen? He wants people to experience. He wanted you to experience it. And he wants you to help others experience it. He gave you a gift so that you could help pass that gift on to other people. And that takes us to the second letter. Where we read kind of the point of the whole thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. 
very quickly now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's a message the world needs to hear. That's a message we need to be reminded of. That old junk isn't your baggage anymore. All of this goodness is from God. And then he gets into some theology that I think is powerful. This, this excites me. All this is from God who reconciled, reconnected, took two parts that were distant and brought them together. You and God. All of this is from God who reconciled, brought us together to himself through Jesus Christ. And then, and then, and then he gave you and me the ministry of reconciliation. We have the task our field, our building is not a building. Our field is not a field. Our service is not just busyness. Our work is bringing the ministry of reconciliation to other people. And that was, that was what God wanted from the beginning. So in verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now, this is the kind of sentence that when I grew up in my Pentecostal church and we would remind people that God isn't counting your sins against you, we would hear, amen, preach, thank you, Jesus. People had a sense and an awareness that God had done something powerful in them. And it moved them to get beyond the pettiness and the brokenness and the, and the goofiness and to not simply let their change, their transition, or their stress speak into their lives. Instead, let the ministry of reconciliation speak. That God had reconciled them and that he wanted, here's the privilege, he wanted to use the reconciled ones to bring the message of reconciliation to everybody else. Whoa! You mean, not only am I forgiven, but God wants to use me? I, I don't have time to argue about the goofy stuff. And when I argue about important stuff, I don't have time. We can't afford to treat people as if they're anything less than people made in the image of God. We don't have time for that. We can't get stuck drinking milk from a bottle. We have a full meal meant to energize us and bring us into full health. And the service of God is too important. God was reconciling the world through us. He was reconciling the world to Jesus through us, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, the so what is coming. It's simple, it's clear. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. As though God, listen, Listen to the privilege of being in God's service, being a part of God's field, being the building he's building. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you then. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. If you're not reconciled, you're here, God's here. If you're not reconciled back together because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we implore you, be reconciled to God. And if you are, Help others get reconciled to God. Listen, the enemy would love to use the hurt you've experienced in the church to keep you from being about the ministry of reconciliation. He'd love to keep you stuck. He would love that. He would love to keep your addictions holding you back. But be reconciled to God. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin. That's Jesus. It's certainly not me. To be sin for us. He took it all on himself so that we might become right 
We might become the righteousness, right relationship, right standing, right position. We might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I love this. This is why Jesus used the powerful metaphor of the seed and the sower. Back to the image of the field. You guys know this, right? My grass is dying. How about yours? Anybody? Or are you one of those folks that water it like my neighbor? I hate him. God's going to forgive me. I don't want the nicest yard in the neighborhood. I just don't want to live next to the guy that does. That's, I don't think it's, it's asking too much. My, my yard is dying. So I went and bought this seed. It says, I don't buy it because I'm a skeptic, but it says it's good for like high drought areas, right? And, and then, you know, when my seed be, does begin to grow a little bit like the stuff I planted this spring, my kids ruin it. And I tell you, I have four kids. It's like drowning. Um, anyway, there's seed. Now listen, if you want to plant seed, Jesus talked about this, the image of the field. If you want to plant seed, and this relates right to the ministry of evangelism. This, this is not complicated. It won't take you much. You got to like treat the dirt, don't you? Yeah, you can throw a seed on top of the ground, but if you treat the dirt, if you work it up with a, a hoe or a yard rake or, or, or a plow or something like that or a tiller, you make the seed connect the dirt. The Bible says that the message of Jesus is like the seed. This is the word of God, the work of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. All that God wants to do, it's in seed form. It hasn't produced yet. It has to fall on soil that can receive it. And so what God does in people's lives is, is he makes their hearts receptive. You know when he does that? You know when people are most receptive to the gospel? It isn't when life is going perfect for them. Very few people go, my life is perfect. I don't deserve this. There must be a God. I think I'll follow him. That's not the typical path. Typically, it's in times of change, transition, and stress. People start thinking, oh, I don't know if I've done the best I can. My life's not all I'd like. Maybe somebody can help me. And God's okay with that. So God works the soil. Some of us curse this time in our lives when our soil's being worked over. I mean, I don't, I don't want to like totally personify soil here, but I'm certain it's not all that pleasant if you're dirt to have a rake going, you know. Met. And yet that's the image that God does in our lives. He, he, he tills the soil. He plows the row. He disturbs it. Gets it ready. Do you know that there are people all around you who are going through change, transition, and stress, and God's tilling the soil in hopes that when the seed falls, it connects with that soil and gives it a chance to grow. Paul said, some planted, others watered. I planted, Apollos watered. There is the idea of putting water on the soil. You know, when, when, when we think about our hospitality team here at church, we're aware that often when people come to church, they're coming from times of change transition and stress that's going on in their lives. So we say to our hospitality team, we remind them of one of the key verses of the Bible. I don't even know if you knew this was in there. It's in the book of Romans. The kindness of God leads to repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. By the way, if you're one of the warriors of truth for Jesus, and like that's the banner you wear, just remember that Jesus said the kindness of God leads to repentance. I've never won an argument, and at the end of the argument, somebody said, you're right, Ben, I'll commit my life to Jesus. I've, it's never happened to me. And I've seen many, many people led to Christ. It was when truth, the seed, mixed with this kindness at a moment of receptivity. That's why it's bigger than you. That's why Paul says, I planted some seed, but Apollos came along and watered it. But God gave the increase. What an amazing privilege. When we think about evangelism, often we want to go straight to harvest time, to the cutting. 
to the moment where you pluck the fruit. And some of you have been beating yourselves up because you think you're not an evangelist because you haven't led people to Jesus. And yet the kindness of God oozes out of you. And when you have words of truth, the way you present them doesn't undermine the work of God. It's just simply the way you do it, the way you engage people, listening more than you're talking, engaging them by looking at them, inviting them to environments where you're already doing life. The way you do it makes them very receptive. It's like the ground is being tilled. It's like, it's like you're pouring water on starving seed. It takes so much for the message of reconciliation to be received and brought. That's why God says it has to be elevated. These other things cannot distract us. So as you and I watch other churches and whole segments of Christianity disintegrate, as they lose focus on the fact that it's about Jesus and it's about his message, as we watch that, don't get caught up in that. Instead, ask yourself, God, is this a moment where you want me to water the seed? I might have to speak truth, but truth and love is the only kind of truth that Jesus said to have spoken. Truth and love. Absolute truth. Listen, we take the word of God seriously around here. There is no compromise with the Holy Scripture here. Not at all. If it says red, we believe it's red. If it says black, we believe it's black. If it says white, we believe it's white. It's the way it goes. And yet when we do it, we want to make sure that people know our hearts are for them, even as we tell them that what they think is red is really black. That is partnering. That's taking the soil that God is already preparing in their lives and watering it, planting seed, praying with bated breath, with anticipating hearts, with with the burden, as the old timers used to call it, the burden of seeing lost people one to Jesus, taking it seriously. Even as we love people, we rally around the fact that the kindness of God. I've discovered with my kids that I can say almost anything to them. Almost anything. And they'll receive it if I watch how I say it. I can have a discussion about my kids not having all the discipline they need to succeed in school. When I come at it simply in anger and frustration, and sometimes, honestly, for me, embarrassment, it, it doesn't take. Uh-uh, listen, I'm right. By the way, just go ahead and fix this in your head. When you talk with me, I'm right. <laughs> but the way I do it, doesn't it make all the difference? Doesn't it? Those of you that are managers, you, you know, people work for you. Isn't it true that if they have a complaint, how they do the complaint matters as much as the complaint? And as a manager, you're much more receptive and le- much less on guard, much less defensive if they come with the right attitude. It's true in churches. You know, some people, I think God gave them the ministry of complaining. I, he didn't. I think they think he did. And, and just the way they talk, like when they start coming, I'm like, reading my Bible, don't go. You know, um, that's the way I feel because it's the way, it's not even what they say. No, a wise person rises above that and receives criticism, but that's hard to do. That's why among God's work in his field and his service and his building, we can't get distracted. We can't disintegrate into arguments. Listen to me, just four corners. Don't embarrass your pastor. Quit if you are and don't if you never have using Facebook and Twitter to make theological points in a vacuum. 
Use Facebook and Twitter to post pictures about your kids. I'll hit the like button all day long. Like. But if you expect your pastor to rally around your preaching from Facebook to an unknown audience and hold up your agenda and the way you're, it's not a good medium to engage people in some of the most important dialogue. You know what the right medium is? This is what God calls us to do. Invite them to coffee, sit across from the table with them and say, I'd love to hear your ideas. And as they talk, you listen. And if you feel like God wants you to share something, you find your boldness in Christ. And face to face, eye to eye, looking somebody in the eye, you have the discussion. That's the only biblical model for difficult conversations. You go directly, not passive aggressively. Because the mission of Jesus is too important. The work of God is too sacred. Your responsibility and privilege as a co-laborer in the cause of Jesus, one who God gave the ministry of reconciliation to, as though God were reconciling the world to Jesus through you, is far too important to get caught up in all this other silliness. That's why God says, if you've been hurt, forgive because the work of Jesus is too important. And if you have a rebellious streak in you, bring it under submission so that the work of Jesus can continue. And if you won't be led at all, like, it, you know, if that's just the way you are, you're just like a rebel to the core and find a way to submit to the work of God, the bigger picture, even as you work through the emotional parts of what that looks like here in this world. Do you want to honor your parents? You know, it's because they're not perfect. Find a way to embrace the scriptural principle that you honor imperfect parents anyway, even if you don't agree with them, and let your tone of engagement shift so that the work of God in you isn't hindered. And if the work of God in you isn't hindered, the work of God in this world can flow much more freely. So I wonder, I wonder, if there's anybody in your life that God's already begun to prepare the soil and he wants you to throw some seed on it. Or he wants you, where he's already been at work because you don't know, to be like fresh water to starving seed. See, I think there is. I think if you're going through some really tough stuff in your life right now, one of the ways God wants to help you emotionally engage it is by getting your eyes off of the stuff and getting your eyes on his service. And get some real perspective that while this life is important, there's an eternity staring us down. And that really matters. That the scripture teaches with clarity that everyone will spend eternity somewhere. And we got to get about the Father's business of the ministry of reconciliation. And you should be able to draw a connected dark line to the engagement of the ministry of reconciliation in your life. And if you can't draw a direct line, you probably aren't fully engaged. And that might help explain why these other peripheral issues seem to be consuming you. And why you come to church starved. Pastor, feed me. Yeah, absolutely. We can give the word of God every, every week. If it doesn't satisfy, it could be that other things are crowding it out. I mean, I, churches, pastors, church leaders, the ministry is a beautiful buffet and smorgasbord, but if you come already filled up on other goofiness, it's hard to get nourished that way. So today, in our summer break, I'm asking you to consider, where are you engaged in the ministry of reconciliation? Where are you? Is God, you know, preparing your soil a little bit? What do you think he's doing that for? You think he doesn't like you? Or do you think there's something bigger for you? 
don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a few steps together as a congregation. <coughs> so God has, I, I hope you can tell, he's kind of burdened my heart about making sure we stay clear about the mission. And so next step A is about as central to the mission as we can be. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time, you want to say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. What you accomplished through Jesus and his death and resurrection, I receive that as the vehicle of my renewed relationship with you. If you want to do that, check the box as an act of faith. We'll contact you about what that means. We're going to pray in a moment. You can simply say, as I'm praying, God, forgive me. I want you to lead my life. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. We believe if you do that, that you begin a relationship. You can call it you got saved, you got born again. You, we, we say you become a follower of Jesus. Next step B. I want to get baptized on Sunday, July 1. Sunday, July 1, which is just a little bit away from you, like one week. You got a few people getting baptized. This is where you go public with your faith and you say, I'm not ashamed of what God's done in me. I'm not ashamed of the potential he's placed in me. And I want to grab hold of that and I want the world to know that I'm with Jesus. You proclaim the good news when you do that. So here, here's, where, here's, where, here's where it gets hard for me, next step C, because I, I feel the burden this week. Even as I'm physically sweating and working with an amazing group of volunteers at our new facility yesterday, you guys busted out some work. Thank you. But as I'm doing that, I find myself kind of finding individual jobs to do because I'm, I'm almost in tears as I'm thinking about what this building is going to allow this church to do. I, I'm deeply excited about the building, but I'm excited about the fact that people are going to come to Jesus Lives are going to be changed. The old is going to be gone and the new is going to come. And so I'm praying for, and then you would just simply in the space at sea, write a name. One name. One name of a person who needs to be in an active relationship with Jesus. Listen, if you don't have a name this week, don't you, don't you do anything else until you get on your knees before God and say, God, give me a burden for a lost person. The fact that I don't have one shows that there's some immaturity in my life. Give me a burden for somebody lost, Lord. Put a name in there and let us as a staff just join with you in prayer for that person. That God will continue to work the soil. That somebody will plant seeds. That maybe, maybe you will. Somebody will water and pray for God to give increase there until the seed grows. Produces a harvest a hundredfold, a thousandfold. Man, how many plants can one seed produce? Next step, D. There's a simple little testimony idea. It's going to take me 30 seconds to tell it to you. BC stands for before Christ. What was your life like before Christ? AD means, you know, after your decision to follow Jesus. What happened? I wonder if you took five minutes this week and you said, before Jesus, my life looked like this. At the cross, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And after my decision, here's what my life looked like. You realize that the word of your testimony is like, powerful seed. And while people can argue with your ideas of truth, they can't argue with your story. That's why God calls us to be witnesses to him. That's simply to tell the story of what happened to us. When we do that, it's like watering the soil. All right, and the next step E, we're like headlong into the new facility. If you want to help us, you need to be on the communication link to do that. We do this via email. You can help at the new facility this week. We're going to do it Monday 6 to 9. Friday 6 to 9, and Saturday 9 a.m. to noon, this week. That's largely going to be the schedule. If you check this box, we'll put you on the email communication. That's how you'll hear about this, all right? If you'd like to do that, you can help us build a building that isn't about a building. It's about building lives. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you, Father, 
for your grace. God, as we take our steps today to make you our Lord and Savior, to go public, to get a burden, to rally around what you're doing, God, I pray that you would cause all the silliness to fluff away, to just, just dissipate as we engage your priorities. Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for communion right now, God, I pray that as we take in your broken body, that you would bring wholeness to us. And as we drink the symbol of your death and resurrection, God, we'd be reminded that our sins are gone. They're not held against us. And that would bring us to great commitment to the work you're doing in this world. I pray this in the powerful and holy name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen.